indeed that is our hope that that one day Christ will return and the powers of hell will indeed vanish as the darkness clears away. We long for that day. Today we look to our sermon text in Genesis chapter 6 beginning in verse 9 running through verse 22. If you are able would you please rise now as I read from the inspired word of God. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to the, their kinds and the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Lord, we just ask that you'd speak to us today. Speak to us clearly, speak to us directly Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to receive your word. Most of all, we pray that you would help us to have a more true picture of Jesus, who is our hope. For it is in his name we ask it. Amen. We talk a lot about how uh, all of scripture points to Jesus. I hope that that's a message that you're familiar with. Uh, you know, we've, we've looked many times at the disciples on the road to Emmaus, right, after the resurrection of our Lord, and, and what was it that Jesus did, but it says that he, he opened to them uh, the, the, the scriptures, right, starting with Moses and the prophets, he showed them how all of the scriptures, that is, all of the Old Testament, pointed to him. 
And so it is that picking up on last year's sermon series where we looked at how such figures in the Old Testament as Abraham and Moses and uh, David pointed us to Jesus. So, so it is that, that this year during Advent, we're going to look at some more Old Testament figures and show how they pointed us to Jesus and stir in us a hope and a longing for Jesus and all that he provides. Today we see how Jesus is indeed the true and better Noah. We, we start off in verse 9 of our text. We see that these are the generations of Noah. And that's a phrase. It's kind of a little, a little signal phrase when you read in Genesis. These are the generations of. It's essentially starting a new section of the book at that point. And saying this, this is a new section that, that you need to understand that's set apart. And, and just like we said last week, uh, that, that if we're to understand any part of Scripture correctly, we need to understand the context. So I'm going to back up just a little bit before this new section has started. In verse 5, it speaks of how the Lord saw the wickedness of man, and it was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts, or of the thoughts of his heart, were only evil continually. We read about how this grieved the Lord to his heart, and, and he determined in justice to do something about it. Judgment was coming. And we read in verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this word favor here, interestingly, is a word that doesn't necessarily point to Noah doing everything right or to him being holy, but rather is actually the same word that's used often in the Old Testament for grace. We could very well say Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, we get to verse 9 then, and we see that Noah was a righteous man and blameless in his generation. We might be tempted to think, no, Pete, I, I think it's saying here that, that Noah was holy, that he was, says he was righteous, he was blameless in his generation. And, and we might be tempted to think that he was somehow sinless, but of course that is not the case. We know from other parts of Scripture that, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we aren't sure yet, all we have to do is get three chapters down the road with Noah, and we see that indeed he is far from sinless. And so we say, what exactly is it saying here? Well, it's just quite simply what it says next in verse 9. Noah walked with God. It's the kind of phrase that we use all the time regarding to ourselves. We want to walk with God. When we say we walk with God, we're not saying that we are perfect. We're not saying that we never sin. Uh, but what we are saying is that it is our intent, our desire, our hope, even our practice to when we are confronted with our own sin to turn away from it and to turn to God, to trust in him and rest in his grace as our only hope. Right? So, so when it talks about Noah's righteousness here, it's not talking about a holy perfection. It's talking about a righteousness that depends upon the mercy and grace and favor of God. We could call it a righteousness that comes by faith. In fact, this is the very first time that we see in uh, the scriptures that the word righteousness is used, but it's going to come up here not too far down the road. You know, as we, we look at, at chapter 15 of Genesis, when it's talking about Abraham. 
Right? And, and similarly, Hebrews 11 tells us that with both Abraham and Noah, that the righteousness that they have is a righteousness that comes through faith. So, so this idea of him being righteous, blameless in his generation, it, it might be something we, we could say, you know, he, he was a, a good and godly man. Right? We understand what's meant by that. We understand that it doesn't mean that he is perfect. It doesn't mean he's sinless. But that he is walking with the Lord, trusting in him. So anyway, long story short, if we look at the world today, it is not too hard for us to see that, that the world of Genesis 6 is very familiar, isn't it? There's, there's all kinds of brokenness and strife and hatred and bitterness abounding in our world today. You know, we have conflicts all around us. We see uh, all kinds of terrible tragedies occurring on the news each night. And it would seem that, as verse 5 put it, the wickedness of man is great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. Of course, this should not surprise us in the least. For the Word of God has told us that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else and that no one is righteous no not one the reality is the same today just as it was in Noah's day and given that reality and the fact that God's good creation has been corrupted by man and doomed to destruction God is our only God is our only hope. And, and just like in Noah's day, we find that hope in God's plan, in God's protection, and God's person. First, his plan. There, there's a declared plan that God has for mankind. It's, it's right there at the beginning of the book of Genesis, right? God designed this world. He, he made it all out of nothing. He's the one who knows all things. Of course it would make sense that he would know best how we ought to live our life and what is best for us. You remember what he told Adam back in the Garden of Eden. He, he told him that, that human beings who alone bear the image of God were to be fruitful and multiply and so fill the earth with the glory of God. What a concept, this idea of filling the earth with the glory of God. I fear that we've kind of lost this idea. You know, in the days of the early church, you know, the Christians were known more than anything else for the sacrificial love that they showed toward their neighbors. One writer put it this way, the early church stood in contrast to the misery, chaos, fear and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. There was a time when, when the greatest scientists of the world came from the church. Right? Galileo and Newton. 
Pascal. There, there was a time historically when, when all the greatest art came from the church, right? The greatest music came from the church. The greatest, greatest artwork, pictures and such, paintings. Sadly, this idea of filling the earth with the glory of God is something that we've, we've kind of lost. It seems to no longer be important to us. It certainly was not important in Noah's day, was it? We read in verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. It's supposed to be filled with the glory of God. Instead, it is filled with violence and corruption. God saw the earth. Behold, it was corrupt for all flesh and corrupted their way on the earth. We see this three times, this word corrupt right there in quick succession. The idea of the earth has been corrupted, corrupted, corrupted. I thought about when do we see this idea of corruption? And, and I thought, you know, when I'm, I'm on my computer and I get a message that pops up, your hard drive has been corrupted. And I'm like, ah, that's bad, right? We know that. That's not good at all. If our hard drive has been corrupted, that means that, that things are, are in dangerous, dangerous state, probably doomed. Uh, drastic steps need to be taken at that point, right? And that's where God was. He was ready to take drastic steps steps right god says to Noah in verse 13 i've determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence to them behold i will destroy them with the earth and again in verse 17 he says behold i'll bring a through the flood waters upon the earth and destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven everything that is on the earth shall die now we lose this in the english but if you were looking at this in the Hebrew, you'd pick up on it. This word destroy that God uses in verses uh, 13 and 17 is actually in the Hebrew the same word as corrupt. So the, the corruption that mankind brings and the destruction that God brings are actually the same thing. And I think that there's a teaching point there in that our corruption is actually destruction. We are, we are not, just, not just taking a little bit of a bad step, right? And, oh, it's not what God wants. It's just a little sin. No, in corrupting ourselves through sin, we are actually destroying ourselves. God basically says to them, if you really want to live your life that way, if you really want to live your life without me, if you really want to live your life broken, eventually he says, okay, be broken. But it's like C.S. Lewis put it so succinctly and profoundly, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done, right? He, he turns us over to our will, just like Romans 1 tells us. I saw this quote, I happen happened to see this quote just this morning. John Webster says, sin is misery because it's the perversion of our natures away from God. Sin deforms human life, which always leads to suffering. We cannot hope to despise God and his ways and remain authentically human. Yet the singular history of the human race is that we do just that, break loose from God tear up our roots in his life-giving presence and then wonder why it hurts. Sin ruins us. And in ruining us, it makes us guilty. It makes us feel guilty because we are guilty. 
our lives characterized by iniquity and lawlessness. God wants to give us a picture here in Genesis 6 and 7 of just how serious the consequences of sin are. And the question is, well, how will we respond? How will we respond? One option is we could say, you know what, I think I can do it myself. I can fix it myself. I can take care of things. I can, I can try harder, work harder, be holier, do better, and I will accomplish it, and I will do it myself. The other option is to trust in the plan of the all-knowing and gracious God. Well, verses 14 to 16 go on to tell us about how Noah was to build the ark and, and, and how he did. And verse 19 to 21 tells us how he was to, to take the animals uh, to continue their species and food to sustain all that was on the ark. And we see in the specifics of God's plan in that part of this passage a picture of God's protection. That's the second point. God's protection is where we find our hope. He says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood in verse 14. Ark, this phrase ark, is, is a, a peculiar term. It's actually an Egyptian term. It finds its derivation there. Uh, the Hebrew word that's used for it here is actually found only in one other place in the scriptures, and that's in Exodus 2. You might recall the context there. Uh, the, the Hebrew midwives have been told by Pharaoh that they're to kill all of the baby boys that are born. Right? And Pharaoh is, is looking to, to kill them. And he he is, is pouring out his wrath upon the Hebrew people. And, and the baby Moses is born. And we read in Exodus 2, verse 3, that when his mother could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bunk. That, that, that word basket there is actually the same word that's translated as ark when talking about Noah. And so we, we see there that, that the, the word ark might actually be better translated as something like floating box, right? In Moses' case, it was a little floating box. In Noah's case, it's a really big floating box. But that's really what we're looking at is a floating box box, right? We, we see pictures in our, our Sunday school lessons or, or perhaps you've been to the, the Ark Encounter down in Kentucky and we see this, this big boat, you know, and it's shaped with this really nice keel and hull and I don't even know what these words mean, but I know that, you know, that they're boat words, you know, and so, you know, but, but that's not really from scripture what it says it looked like. It was really more like a box. In fact, the, the, the shape of it actually, most commentators will note this, kind of paralleled the shape of a coffin, right? Even to its dimensions, obviously it was much larger in scale, but in, in the shape that it was. The irony, of course, is this. The only ones who would be alive were the ones that were inside the box. With a coffin, it's the other way around normally, right? Well, in, in this case, we see that it was uh, 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits. A cubit's about 20 inches, give or take. So we're looking at about 500 feet long, right? 
by 80 feet by 50 feet high. Just imagine all the, the time that it would have taken, all the work that would have gone into it. And we might be tempted to think, my goodness, what a great example it is of, of, of Noah working hard to protect himself. But we don't want to think that way because we need to remember that it wasn't Noah's plan. It was God's plan all along. Right? It's not like Noah turned on the evening news one night and, and uh, the weather came on and the meteorologist said, well, I've been looking at the radar and, and I, I think there's a pretty good chance of rain. A lot of it, as a matter of fact, right? No, I, God came to Noah. He's the one who informed him. He's the one who directed him. He's the one who gave him the plan. He's the one who told him what he needed to do and how to do it. He is the one who gave him the plan of salvation. And we see in verse 16 that, that he said, set the door of the ark in its side. And that makes sense. Uh, that there be a door, it'd have to be one there. But I, I specifically highlight that because in chapter 17, where we're not going to cover 17 so much, but I do want to point this out in verse, or chapter 7, verse 16. Uh, it says how that they all entered in, male and female of all the flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut them in. Right? The Lord is the one that closed the door, that, that shut them in, that determined the time had come, that determined that those who were on the ark, inside his box, would be protected, would be safe, would be delivered. The ones outside of the box would not. They would be judged. And the waters of judgment would fall upon them. His patience, while he had waited, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, all the days while the ark was being pre prepared, so that eight persons were brought safely through the water. He waited so long, at which time any of the people outside of the ark could have said, you know what? I think I need to repent. You know what? I, I think I've been doing wrong. You know what? I, I, I think I've been heading in the wrong direction. I think I need to turn to God. I, I need forgiveness for my sins. No doubt there were those who mocked Noah, but even they could have turned. You know, if it were me and I'm building a boat for all this time and and then, you know, somebody at the last minute wants to get on after mocking me the whole time. My heart might say, tough luck, dude, right? But not God. Not God, right? We see it even in the picture of Jesus as he's hanging on the cross, right? As, as there's, there's even not just the soldiers and the people beneath him, but even one of the, the thieves being executed with him is hurling insults at him. He finally realizes at the last moment is wrong I need forgiveness I come to you Jesus and Jesus says father forgive them for they know not what they're doing he says I tell you this today you will be in paradise with me to that thief there's one other thing I, I need to point out that I noticed as I was preparing this week that I've never noticed before as I was looking at this and I noticed this whole lesson has been a little heavy on the Hebrew language stuff and I know that can get kind of uh, pedantic at times, but I thought this was really interesting. Uh, in the verse 14, it talks about how he's to make rooms for the ark, cover it inside and out with pitch. And that word pitch there is actually related etymologically to the, the word for cover or covering. Right? They actually are kind of the same word, the, the, the Hebrew word group, the, the 
kapar, kapar. You might hear the word Yom Kippur, right? The day of coverings, the day of atonement. Uh, it's related to that. We, we might use the phrase, right? If somebody, you know, comes here, we take, go out to lunch with somebody, and they, they realize, uh-oh, I left my wallet behind. What would we say to them? Don't worry about it. I've got you covered. I've got you covered. I will pay what you owe. I will take care of your debt. Right? It's actually a, a phrase that was used in the Hebrew for paying a ransom. Somebody owed a ransom to, to be delivered, to be set free. That same phrase would be used. That same phrase that was used also of, of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Right, this, this idea of this covering that we need. Well, it's provided for us. It's provided for us through covenant. Verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you, God says. You shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. A covenant's an unbreakable promise, right? That's normally made between a greater king and a lesser king. And the idea is that the lesser king promises to, to serve the interests of the greater king. He will... He will uh, promote his glory throughout the land, as it were. Whereas the greater king promises to care for and to protect the lesser king and his people. He, he'll provide the benefits of his kingdom. And in this covenant, God is saying to Noah, you and your people are mine. You belong to me and I will care for you. Noah had trusted in his promises. And so God was making this covenant with him. Noah was God's man for that. Or we could say Noah was God's person. His person begins with P. Yeah. Just like his plan, his protection. Noah was God's person. That's the third place we find hope is in God's person. Noah had to wonder if it was really going to happen, right? But even so, he did all that God commanded him, verse 22 tells us. That was his response to the covenant that God had provided. Noah obeys, not to earn God's favor, but, but in response to the favor he's already received. And I need to ask you this today. Are the grace of God and the promise of God good enough for you to trust in today? Is your hope worth, or is his promise worth your hope? I believe it is. And Noah shows us that it is here. Right? Noah responds to the Lord's grace with faithfulness. He doesn't argue. He doesn't complain. He sets about the task that was set before him, and he builds the ark. And, and, and in doing that, Noah's story points the people of God toward the requirement of God's law that we have failed, right? It, it shows us in, in this story that there is a justice that we deserve, but it also that there is a mercy through which God delivers us. And more specifically, Noah points us to the true and better Noah, that is Jesus. Whereas the righteousness of Noah was not a sinless perfection, the righteousness of Jesus, of course, is and so if the, the family of Noah was able to find deliverance through the limited righteousness of Noah, how much more so should we who are 
family of Christ Jesus is delivered by his perfect righteousness, right? See, remember Noah's family, right? When it's said about them, it doesn't say that they were righteous. It doesn't say that they found favor with the Lord. It said that Noah had. And why were they delivered? Because they were with him. And just like the disciples in the boat in our unison scripture reading, right? Why was it that they were safe? Why was it that they were delivered? Because Jesus was with them in the boat, right? If Jesus is not with them in the boat, they're lost. It's hopeless. But they have hope because Jesus was with them and he can deliver them. And so we see verse 10 told us that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? And it points us to the fact that 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 deliverance was going to be for them as well as for Noah because of the covenant promises of God. And we see that Noah, in his name alone, is the word rest. That's what his name means. It means rest. And of course, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. He promises us, come to me, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is indeed the true and better Noah. But if we strive to live in our own strength, by our own wisdom, by our own power, by our own righteousness, we are doomed to destruction. Instead, let us live in the righteous, righteousness and the protection and the covering that Jesus provides, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He who was the son of man who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, the story of Noah looks far beyond the judgment and destruction present in the flood and it points us to the true and better Noah who would deliver not just seven other people, but all who would trust in him. Salvation was found in Noah and only in Noah in the book of Genesis. But in the same way, we can find salvation only in Jesus. Salvation from the righteous judgment of God, yes, but also salvation from the futility of of our own self-reliance, salvation from the brokenness of our fallen world, salvation from the, the trials and hardships that we experience as a result, and salvation from the darkness which threatens to overwhelm us and our world. And amidst that darkness, remember this, sometimes a light surprises that light is our hope. That light is our salvation. That light is Jesus. May we look always to him. And may he come quickly. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we once again look to you as our hope, our only hope in the midst of dark times, in the midst of 
judgment, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of mocking, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of all of these, you are our hope. And so we turn to you now. We turn to you, we worship you, we trust in you with confidence, looking forward to your return. Come, Lord Jesus.